All right, so we're wrapping up our series this morning um, where we've been exploring these different practices of Jesus that might help us unhurry our lives. Kind of this question that framed it for me, at least in the beginning, was how do I become the me I want to be? Well, it's Dallas Willard that says you have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Yeah, ruthlessly. Eliminate this sense of hurry and how it disrupts and interferes with with our spiritual life, with our ability to be present with God and with our neighbors. Jesus put on display for us an unhurried life where space for God and love for people were his top priorities. This is from John Mark Comer. Jesus put on display this unhurried life where space for God and love for people were his top priorities. So we've been looking at each week a different habit of Jesus. You might call it a spiritual discipline, a way of being in the world that allowed him to make room for what mattered most. And the idea of this invitation to come, all who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, and you can find a rest with me, this idea is that we actually follow him, become his apprentice, learn to live like Jesus, then maybe we too can live in such a way that we make room for what matters most. And in so doing, we find this sense of peace and purpose and rest in the presence of God. So we've looked at some of these different practices like silence and solitude, Sabbath, and last week, slowing. And each week, we've been kind of ending with some practical ways that we can begin to practice these things in our lives. If you think about it as like, I've heard it like kind of a rule of life, a way of ordering our life in which we are able to thrive and grow and abide with God, right? Live spiritually with God. It's like a trellis, a rule, a ruler, if you will in which we can order and then grow and thrive like a trellis would, those viney plants. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Fill in the blank of a plant that would use a trellis to grow, and you understand my metaphor. (laughs) So these practices that can become like a trellis for us, a way to order our lives. How did it go last week with slowing? Anybody? Raise your hand if you drove the speed limit. (laughs) Yay, Sharon! All right. Raise your in the slow lane. You failed this morning, but you're here <laughs> and not in a hurry anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And on our website, I've been uh, putting along each of these spiritual disciplines, other resources for ways that you can sort of. Um, realistically or not, but different, you know, you don't have to do them all, but things that fit you and where you are of how you can begin to practice some of these disciplines. I love this, the fuller part of this quote, Jesus put on display an unhurried life where space for God and love for people were the top priorities. And because he said yes to the Father in his kingdom, he constantly said no to countless other invitations. That is so important for us to remember. Because he said yes to being abiding with God and living in that kingdom, announcing that kingdom and what matters and what's valued there, of having the eyes to see that kingdom even here, it meant that he, and it does mean that we, have to say no to countless other opportunities. I think it was week two we talked about how that means we have to acknowledge and accept that we have limits, that we cannot do it all, we cannot see it all, we cannot just do everything that we feel like maybe is demanded of us. Our culture wants us to sort of transgress all limitations, to cheat time and space. 
but we can't do it all. Our culture might even try and sell it to us that, that we can, that we can be limitless, that we can, be, we can have it all, that we can be successful. But successful according to who? And successful according to what? As followers of Jesus Christ, we're trying to make room in our lives to not just fill it in our busy schedules, but to live purposefully. Being a disciple of Jesus, having room and space in our lives so that we can live out the call that has been placed upon us as his followers. So the last one we're going to talk about this morning, this last sort of practice of Jesus, is simplicity. Living simply. And I think this fits this idea that we have to sort of accept that we have limits. That we can't go and do and see it all. It's this myth of the good life, of the American dream that's sort of sold to us, even sort of spiritualized into this prosperity gospel, right? That we, that we swim in the waters of this. We hear it. It's constantly that noise that we talked about silencing on week one. This is the message that we're, that we're told. There's this myth that the more I have, the happier I will be. And I'm talking about material wealth and gain and possessions and things. The more we have, the happier we will be. It's a myth of this good life. This idea even that we are what we consume and eat and buy and wear, we get our identity in a lot of ways from our possessions, from these sometimes like status symbols. There's a French sociologist, Jean Bolliard, who says this, in the Western world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. It's where we get our mo- the most meaning in our lives. He argues, even, that atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. Oh, I had to, like, stop on that one. I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. And it's Alan Fadling that says this, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. It's an engine for hurry. That drive to possess, to want more, to buy more, to collect more, to be more, it drives us to this place of hurriedness. We've talked kind of over the last couple of years, um, you know, this sense of greed. But then if you remember the series that we did a couple of lengths ago, that's been two years. That's hard to believe. We talked about the vice of greed, but actually what's underneath that even more is avarice, this sort of like attachment to possessions that we can have, this love of money. That's greed, but even deeper than that is kind of that attachment to our things. And this idea that we, we need to be more, to, to have more, so that it, it makes us happier, this go, go, go. And honestly, friends, I'm kind of even most concerned with younger folks today in the age of like social influencers and how present it is that they're able to see all this information and compare themselves of what they have and what they don't and and the social influencers that now sell a lot of products and they present to you this facade and this idea that if you have this thing you can be just like them I love, um, oftentimes you'll see like the, these social influencers that have these sort of sets in their home and they're like flawless and perfect, like out of a catalog of just how you would imagine like the perfect home would be decorated and it's clean and it's modern and like there's no clutter. And I'm like, they have kids, right? They're, they're like, my feet is filled with all these like mothers, toddlers, social influencers, you know, that are like, if you just have all of these things to entertain your children, you will be the perfect mother, right? 
And I really wanted to like zoom out, like, can you give me a 360 of your room, please? Because I do not believe that that backdrop right there is all that your house looks like, right? And that's sort of like this age of comparison, which is not exactly the focus today, but it's all related. It's all related to this sort of internal drive that our culture kind of gives to us of like, we, we have to be more. And a part of that is consuming and buying more so that you can be happy like that person you see on TV or your newsfeed or whatever. And in all of that context, we run up against these teachings of Jesus when he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Or if you want to be perfect, here, perfected in love, okay? We're not talking about our modern perfectionism. If you want to be perfected in love, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Or we hear him say things like, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In the midst of all of that noise, of all the context that we live and swim and breathe and everything, we have these teachings of Jesus that just run so counter to how our American world works. The passage of scripture I want to focus on this morning comes from Matthew 6. We've read it before. It's probably familiar to you, but I want it to focus us this morning for our time of study. This comes from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There are probably familiar parts of this passage that we remember, that we sort of, honestly, sometimes we forget that it's all there together in one, because there's so many of these one-liners. You're like, oh, I've heard that before. Like, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Sorry. (laughs) Switch that. I'm glad you caught it. (laughs) Coffee's strong this morning. The first part. Do not, lay, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But verse 21 there, it's one of those one-liners. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, the stuff that matters, the stuff that will last, the kingdom values. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This one's pretty straightforward. Treasure what is, you know, put your treasure in what's most important and what, what's everlasting. Our relationship with God and being among his community, following the ways of Jesus, that's what's going to last. Invest yourself in that. 
I think of this, one of my favorite songs from Mumford and Sons who says, where you invest your love, you invest your life. That is what you love is kind of what you are. So invest yourself in what matters. Be careful what you love. That one's pretty straightforward. Or maybe this one too, you cannot serve both God and money. Other, uh, other places in the Gospels, it says mammon. You're like, oh, that's a weird word. It's the same thing. Money, wealth, pursuit of gain. You cannot serve both God and money. That's another one-liner that we might remember from this passage. No, no person can serve two things. There's only going to be one Lord of your life. There's only one thing that can rule and order it all. It reminded me of the passage, like, you cannot say you love God and hate your neighbor. Both of those things cannot be true. We cannot say that we love God, that we serve God, and also love money and our possessions and our attachment to them. Those two, we kind of get that. These are, these are straightforward. But what in the world in the middle there is verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Do you guys remember that one from this passage? They're <laughs> like, what in the world does that mean? Well, I think we need to understand a little bit about what when the hearers of the day who were listening to Jesus, what did they mean by having a healthy eye? Not necessarily meaning going to, go to your optometrist or ophthalmologist every year, although I do that because I'm almost legally blind. Fun fact about Rachel. <laughs> I do that every year. It's not, they're not talking about eye health. They're talking about a way of seeing the world. They're talking about a way of being. And a healthy eye here actually has double meaning. First, it meant that you were focused and living with a high degree of intentionality in your life. Like with purpose. With a focus. A focus. An aim. Remember, too, we've like while you're running your race, this is in Hebrews, right? To keep your eye fixed on the prize, the end of the race, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So that makes sense to even our modern ears of like when you have your eye on something, it means that you're focused. It means you're prioritizing. You're living intentionally. But there was a second meaning to this as well. If it meant that you had a healthy eye, it honestly also meant that you were generous to the poor. And how? How is this? Well, it was this, when you looked at the world, your worldview, you saw those in need and did your best to help and serve others. Having a healthy eye means that you really saw people. It means that you saw the world and how it worked, and you saw the people who were in need. And then living intentionally and on purpose and with focus, especially after Jesus, it meant that you remembered the poor. Consequently, having an unhealthy eye, which in the King, King James Version says evil eye. Ooh. <laughs> a bad eye. Again, not talking about eye health, but an unhealthy eye is when you looked out at the world, when you looked out on your worldview, you were distracted by all that glittered and shined, and you lost, lost focus on what really mattered. In turn, you closed your fist to the poor. You didn't, because you didn't truly see them. You didn't truly see the need. All you saw was what was bright and shiny. What captivated your eye? Because you had an unhealthy eye. 
John Mark Comer says this, you simply can't live the freedom way of Jesus and get sucked into the overconsumption that is normal in our society. The two are mutually exclusive. You have to pick. If we want to have a healthy eye with our vision on the kingdom and the ways of Jesus and following after him, means that we can't be distracted by all that glitters and shines, all that kind of appeals to our desire of wanting and needing more so that we can have control or status or approval or whatever else it is that we just go, 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 bye, bye, bye. The Jesus way, detached from our things and thirst or grasping for more, he shows us a different way. And that's a way of freedom. Freedom from things that leave space and room not only in our lives and time, but in our budgets. That we can be generous. In the series where we did talk about these vices, remember each week I gave you an anecdote to the vice. Like if the vice is avarice and this attachment to possessions, the anecdote is practicing generosity. The anecdote is practicing, that was the virtue, right? We had a vice and then a virtue. So the virtue was practicing this sense of gratitude and generosity. Being grateful for what we do have. Practicing letting go of this attachment to our things by surrendering to God and trusting in his provision. And then practicing generosity. Having sort of this open posture to the poor in which we can see people, truly see them in their needs. And be ready and willing to help because we have space and room in our lives to do so practicing of giving away excess and tithing even, giving sacrificially to other missions that matter to us. What's interesting is right after this, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know what the very next line is in verse 25? Oh, man, I built that up, and then it went to sleep. That's so sad. It's this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That famous line that gets plucked out of that passage and just spoken in unhelpful ways over anybody that's ever anxious about anything, and you're saying, don't be anxious about anything. That's actually in this same passage where it talks about storing up your treasures in heaven, and it talks about having healthy eyes to follow Jesus and see the poor and work for justice in the world, and also about not serving God and mammon. And then after that, so do not worry about your life or what you will eat or what you will wear. I don't know about you, but for me that hits a little different. When you realize it's in this series of teachings from Jesus, where he's saying, I'm going to model for you a life of simple joy and freedom, where I'm not attached to this need to control and be and and form my own destiny, but a surrender to a loving God who is with me always. So come and follow me and experience that same freedom. That hits different for me when I hear, so don't be anxious about your life and what you will eat or wear. Don't be anxious about the go, 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 and grab, 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 and buy more, and be more. The way of Jesus, then, is detached from these things so that we can be honed in and focused, have healthy eyes on the kingdom that is coming.
So how do we begin practicing this, you might ask? Oh, first, this is where I was. Okay, 1 Timothy 6. I think like, okay, you can say like what this is not, but what, give me an example of what the Jesus way is, of this practicing generosity. I love how Paul says it in 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in the present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So notice in this, in this part, Paul doesn't say, hey, you who are rich in this present age, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Remember, we taught on this, Jesus was talking to one particular person and could see into his heart of his attachment to his things. And his teaching to him was, you need to sell all of that so you can be free to come and follow me. But here Paul says, hey, you who are rich in the present age, just don't be arrogant about it. Don't put it on display for all the world to see. Don't set your hopes in those things that you have because they're going to be gone one day. But set your hope on God who provides everything we actually need to have life. And do good works. Be generous and ready to share. Okay. And just so you know, for all of us sitting in this room, in this time and place, and in this, you know, worldwide, we are rich in the present age. Might not feel like it to all of us here. I get it. But we are on what really matters. This is for us. So don't be arrogant or haughty about it. Put your hope on God and be ready to share. Be generous. So each week as we've set up what this practice is and how I've tried to argue that we actually do see Jesus practice these things. And then we kind of shift into, okay, so what are some practical applications for this? And what I think is really fascinating is that, like, okay, Jesus taught a lot about money. We don't like to talk about that. But he did. Jesus taught a lot about money. But did we see him live simply? That's not as obvious where I can just kind of pluck out one passage of Scripture and be like, yeah, here it is. Here's the example. But I find it interesting to consider that he did live simply. But before he started his public ministry, he was a tradesman. He was a carpenter. Up in, you know, for, for a lot of years of his adult life. There are many scholars that argue that he probably did pretty well financially for himself, even before starting his ministry. And then after that... He was supported by many wealthy donors as he traveled around with his disciples, and they housed and they fed him. He even befriended, we see he befriends both the rich and the poor. At one point in the Gospels, he's having meals with so many rich people in their homes that he's accused of being a glutton and a drunk. <laughs> oh, So you might see like others, like uh, we just celebrated the feast day of St. Francis of that famous saint, of the saint of ecology, who loved... Anyone see, like, a blessing of the animals this past week? Look, only the two church nerds in the room. Okay, you did? Okay, yeah. For some of us that might come from a Catholic background that recognize more of our saints, um, I want to do it because now I've learned that we could have a blessing over a bearded dragon. We have a bearded dragon in our church family now, y'all. And when I learned that last week, I thought I missed my chance to do a blessing of the animals. That's an aside. 
But it's a celebration of the feast day of Saint, uh, of Saint Francis of Assisi, who took on this kind of uh, vow of poverty. And he created an order of life with his little brothers, he called them, the Fr Franciscan order. And he lived among the lepers. And he left his sort of rich upbringing and his high life that he had inherited from his father's business. And he disowned all of that, and he took on this vow of poverty. And he was like, lived simply, yes, but like the bare minimum. And so he's also known for his love and care for creation, which is how he became the saint of ecology. And from that, we like to say, and we're going to bless animals in honor of that. It's kind of fun. So people, you know, come to their priest or their pastor, and they bring their dog and their cat and their snakes. No. Or their bearded dragons. Or their bearded dragons. Anyways. We see Jesus practice this life of simplicity too, but not in the same way that we see St. Francis in a complete vow of poverty. What I think is interesting about Jesus is that John Mark Comer says this, he lives in this tension between enjoying these beautiful things in life but not becoming too attached to them. Like, yes, he, there's a season for everything under the sun, and we see him attend weddings and feast and enjoy fine wine with his friends. But he didn't do that every day. He also moved around. He had no place to lay his head except from the generosity of wealthy people who were listening to his teachings. He kind of models this for us. Enjoying the good things of time together and friends and fellowship, but too much of anything and too much of wealth is dangerous. It has the potential to turn our hearts away from God. So he says this, to follow Jesus is to live into that same tension between grateful, happy enjoyment of the nice, beautiful things and simplicity. And when in doubt, to err on the side of generous, simple living. Remember, Jesus didn't come and say, all your money is bad, you awful, horrible people. Money is bad. No, it was greed. It was the attachment to it. And in fact, we know when we advocate for our neighbors and see their need that there are people who need to make money. We all need to make money to live. And there are people, you know, think about equity, that they need to be able to feed their children, right? It's not money in and of itself that is bad, but the greed, the attachment to it. And as Christians, as followers today, it's our task to try and live into this tension of the enjoyment of the beautiful things that have been created, but simplicity and generosity as well. I think as followers of Jesus Christ, as a part of this church community, this is where we can hold each other accountable. To say, are you practicing your gratitude and your generosity and living simply? Have you become too attached to your material possessions, to your wealth? Where is your heart? Where is your heart? All right, so the practice of simplicity. What we're talking about is sort of an intentional promotion of the things we value most and the removal of everything that distracts us. I love what Richard Foster says. It's an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle. The goal isn't just to declutter your closet or your garage, but to declutter your life. That's what we're going for here. So as I've ended each week, this comes from his book, so come after him, not me, but... There's a couple of, of sort of guidelines of how we can begin to practice simplicity. You might, have called, you might hear it be called simple living or minimalism. It's not about living with nothing. It's about living with less so that we can declutter our hearts and focus on a healthy eye on what really matters. 
So some of his rules of thumb, before you buy something, ask yourself, what is the true cost of this item? What is the true cost? Because it's not just the dollar amount. There's going to be a cost of your time and more money to maintain and to fix and to clean and to enjoy whatever it is that you've bought. In his book, he uses the example of a motorcycle. The cost of that item is much more than how much you pay for it up front. But you have to think about insurance and maintenance and, and the time. And do you have time to actually ride and enjoy it, right? There's a cost. What is the cost of this item? Before you buy yourself something, ask, is what I am buying oppressing the poor or harming the earth? To pause and think about what impact does this purchase have on the earth and on my neighbor? The level at which we consume, especially in the Western world, is doing great harm to our earth. A lot of us know this. Some of us maybe don't. Especially if you think of the example of, of the clothing industry. When 40, 50 years ago, we used to sort of make and purchase most of our clothes in the United States, thanks to globalization, I think it's less than 2% of clothing is actually made here in the States now. And part of that means that we've outsourced that labor and that it can be cheaper, but why? Ask those questions. Why is the clothes that I'm buying now cheaper? Of those, Is the deal that you're getting really a good deal? What is the impact of this purchase? I've learned that polyesters now are in 50% of our clothing. That's also non-biodegradable. So what's the impact of that next cute outfit that I know you want? <laughs> of that exercise outfit that I know you're getting? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> what is the impact? What is the impact of our neighbors who are working to purchase or to make these clothes? One in six people worldwide work in the clothing industry. 80% are women and fewer than 2% make a living wage. There's an impact. And if we pause, number three, never impulse buy, we might be able to sit with some of those truths and discern what is the true cost of what I'm buying and what impact is it having. Can I see and have a healthy eye to even my global neighbors, to the earth, <laughs> of the impact this purchase is having? So never impulse buy so we don't have buyer's remorse, maybe, but also give yourself a second. Do I really need this? Do I really need this item? If you sit on it for a week and say, yeah, I do, okay. Chances are you might say, after a week, no, I, don't, I actually didn't need that. I'm living just fine without it. When you do buy, opt for fewer, better things. Kind of that rule of thumb of buy it once. Buy the better quality thing once that will last that you don't have to buy the same thing every year, new and fresh, because it wears out or breaks down. When you can, share. I love this. I love this. We don't all need, what is that thing for our garden map? A tiller. We don't all need a tiller in our, in our neighborhood. And one year, we had at least two neighbors that came and borrowed our tiller so that they didn't have to rent one or go buy one themselves, because we only use it once a year to till up our garden, right? We have a tiller if anybody would like to borrow it. <laughs> when you can, share. Get into the habit of giving things away. It is better to give than to receive. Get into the habit of once, once you don't need it anymore, give it away. Can I tell you the greatest gift of the whole tote box of maternity clothes that my group of friends passed around for like five or six years? 
I mean, that's a whole new wardrobe. I don't need it anymore. So the blessing of packing all that stuff in the tote and passing it on to the next mom. And sometimes it came back around after multiple pregnancies. But what a gift when you can share and give it away when you don't need it anymore. Give it away. Live by a budget so that you can actually organize and see where you're spending your money and what you're investing in. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. I have made a major shift in my life in the last year. Instead of buying books, I'm going to the free public library. I know. And I love it. At the end of every, it works for me in my American mind. Uh, at the end of every little receipt I get, it tells me how much money I've saved by not purchasing that book. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. But I, it's because I'm a pastor, and I, I like to collect books, like knowledge or something. I don't know. I haven't read 50% of the books that I own. Maybe more. And so I'm using the library, and it has been wonderful. We don't have to own things to enjoy them. Most of the parks are free, too. We can go and enjoy that without having to own. Cultivate a deep appreciation for creation. This is related. I love this quote. If materialism despiritualizes us, the material world itself has the opposite effect. It re-spiritualizes our souls. We know that there's healing nature in being outdoors with God in nature. So develop and cultivate this deep appreciation for creation. I think that will give us healthy eyes to see the impact maybe of what we're even having on the earth. And then finally, this is from his book too, Recognize Advertising for What It Is. He calls it propaganda. Call it out. Call out the lie. What is this ad actually trying to sell me? Is it a, a product? Is it a car? Or is it that if I buy that car, I can have a really luxurious, beautiful life and trips out west all the time? <clears throat> what is it about car commercials that are always, like, mountainous, you know? Like, like, if I buy that car, that'll be my life. Call it out. It's funny when you think about it. Make it a game. Make it a game with the people you're watching TV with, and you're like, okay, what are they trying to sell me here? Call out the lie for what it is. I'm going to end with this quote from Paul. <clears throat> and as I said, there are other practices for how to get started and practicing simplicity and sort of this simple living, and you can find those posted on our website. But I think these, these words from Paul are really at the heart of what we're getting at, where he says that I can be content. I can be content in all things because of the gratitude I practice, because of the generosity to my neighbors, because my trust in the provision of God. He says, now I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, our savior, for his teachings, for, for showing us this way of life where we don't have to get just sucked up into the, into the drive and, and grind of going and doing and being more, but that you delight in us just because we are your children and that you long to be in relationship with us. So God, I pray is that we continue to sort of experiment and practice with these, with these different disciplines whether it's silence and solitude, whether it's Sabbath, whether it's slowing down our bodies so that we can slow down our souls and be more attuned to your presence. 
or whether it's practicing simplicity. God, I pray that you would be patient with us and give us courage and strength that as we begin to practice these things, we might truly find rest and peace in your presence, that you might draw our attention back to you and the things that really matter in this life. Help us to see to the vision of your kingdom that is coming and already here so that we can find joy and freedom with you. God, we love you and we thank you for these gifts. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.